Today's episode is brought to you by Relevant Digital, proudly presenting Relevant Yield. Hey, publishers and sales networks, ever dreamed of managing pre-bid without breaking a sweat? How about real-time performance analytics, total SSP control, consolidated revenue reporting, and overall efficiency to supercharge your ad sales? Well, dream no more. Introducing Relevant Yield, the unified platform for programmatic sellers an independent solution that develops with the industry trends, showing you the way to the bright media sales future. Get to know us, and soon you'll wonder how you got along without. And here's the kicker. Mention this podcast, and we'll send you the trendiest socks in town. Learn more by visiting relevantyield.com. Welcome to the AdTech God Pod, your window into the world of advertising technology and the people behind it. I'm your host, AdTech God. Welcome, AdTech enthusiasts, to another episode of the AdTech God Pod. I'm your host, AdTech God. The AdTech God Pod continues to grow in popularity, mostly due to the support and feedback of my fans across the space. That being said, it's not me who makes the podcast great, it's the people who trust me and accept my invitation. My own journey is filled with ups and downs, and one day I may share it with the world. For now, hearing these wonderful stories and experiences from my guests, is what keeps me going. We have an incredible guest today on the pod. My guest today has an impressive background in ad tech, having spent time at industry-leading companies like Razorfish, Google, and Snapchat. Her experience at these companies led her to where she is today. She is currently co-founder and CEO of Chalice Custom Algorithms. Chalice empowers you to harness the capabilities of AI, creating custom algorithms using your own data to enhance real-world results for your brand. As we see the industry embrace AI, I believe we'll see more people embrace Chalice. Without further delay, let's get this podcast started. Ali, welcome to the AdTech God Pod. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. I'm here to get blessed and maybe confess. Oh man, we have, uh, we have a lot of confessions in AdTech today. Indeed. I think I'm not a, a especially bad sinner. <laughs> But uh, no, it, I'm talking to God. We'll I know it's thank you. And thank you, Ali, for being here. It's 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 been an absolute joy. Obviously, I, I interact with you a lot. I also interact with with Adam quite a bit online. And um, I'm a fan of yours, a fan of Adam's, a fan of Chalice. So I'm really happy that you guys are here. Thank you. It's always so humbling to hear that people are fans of Chalice. It's um, three and a half years old. It still feels like a baby, maybe a teenager now. So it always amazes me how many people have heard of the company, know it, follow it. It's, yeah, it's really humbling. So, and God has now humbled me. It's great because I'm, I'm not too familiar with what a custom algorithm is. And we'll probably get into that later on the podcast, but I'm, I'm really curious as to what you guys are doing and how you differ in the market. I've obviously seen some of your white papers and I thought that was great, but maybe later on the podcast, we can dig in and just get a better understanding of how you guys set yourself apart in the market. Of course. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. So Ali, you, you obviously have an incredible background. You, you've, you've worked at companies like Google for many, many years, Snapchat, Razorfish. Um, how did you initially get into ad tech? How did this wonderful journey start? Yeah, I'm really happy to share it. Because I know that you are kind of all about the people and the stories and bring authenticity, 
I'm going to tell it a little bit in terms of a love story, if you're okay with an ad tech love story. I am good. I am good with it. <laughs> okay. So, well, first, just getting into it. Um, so I graduated school and joined the Atlantic Monthly and National Journal Group as like a business operations associate. And I was teaching the CEO at the time, David Bradley, what a CPM was. Like he literally didn't know how display or you know online ads were bought and sold. And so, you know, this was 16 or 17 years ago, you know, was educating a CEO of a magazine about how to, you know, monetize online. And I'd gotten into that job because I cared a lot about journalism and had and have aspirations to be a full-time writer one day. But it was, you know, it was still early days for online advertising, but not so early that um, one should be just focusing on the basics of, you know, what is a CPM? And I really wanted to move to New York. So I did research and found that Razorfish, um, at the time was Avenue A Razorfish, was um, one of the, or maybe the top digital ad agency at the time and decided that's where I'm going to go, got an interview and got there. And Razorfish was an incredible place. The talent there was just top notch. And I joined um, the search team for Capital One credit cards which was probably the toughest client at Razorfish, maybe one of the toughest clients in the industry. So the the friends that I made at Razorfish have become lifelong friends, right? And I think that happens a lot in our early careers as we end up making lifelong friends with the people we work with. Um, but there was someone in particular at Razorfish who just was different than anyone else I'd ever met in my life. The smartest person I'd ever met, the most articulate person I ever met. He said things that I wished I was thinking. And I started to fall in love. But there were some barriers to that. The first being that he was not my boss, but he was pretty senior to me. And he was a mentor and coach at work. Also, we were both coupled up with other people. And so it's just sort of like no-go. I just kept telling myself, like, you cannot be in love with this person. Stop being in love with this person. Probably like every day for a year. <laughs> Finally, I, I had broken up with, with my boyfriend at the time. I learned that this person um, was also uncoupling and decided that I would pounce at the opportunity. So pouncing on someone who is about to be promoted to be your boss's boss and is just starting to go through a divorce is not a good idea <laughs> in retrospect. <laughs> and he basically said... No, right? For a lot of reasons, no. And mostly, like, you know, you don't know me outside of work. You don't really know me, right? You only know me in a work context, even though we went out with this group of friends all the time, et cetera. And that was hard. But if you know me, you know that I don't really give up easily once I've locked in on something. And so I continued to pursue him. You know, I told him that I don't know you outside of work that well. But I know you and I know how I feel around you, the effect you have on me, which is a very calming effect. And I'm, you know, I am, I'm serious. I've been telling myself for over a year not to be in love with you. <laughs> and I, you know, I have these feelings. And he said, well, you have to go get another job. I'm not going to entertain this until you're working somewhere else. So that's how I ended up at Google. 
that was um, such a fun ride to be at Google. I got to build Google's go-to-market around YouTube and really branding. And I started to date Adam, who is now my co-founder and husband and father of my two children. Amazing. The ironic things are, I think if you follow Adam, you know that he is very outspoken about Google's market power. He is. Yeah, definitely. It's, it, it, I love, I love, see, I, I like, I like hearing his, his perspective. I think he's, uh, he definitely calls out a lot and, and I read it and sometimes I don't get it, but meaning I don't necessarily understand what he's talking about because he's so smart, but then I kind of read into it and I go, yeah, the guy's got a point. He's got a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. So imagine uh, dating him and then getting married to him while you're working at that company <laughs> for eight years, kind of rising around the ranks. It actually, I think, made me better at Google because I always had a customer of the company in my ear being really critical of the company. And it helped me frame, how do we get better? And I got to bring a lot of that insight back to... So I was in strategy and operations, which is a role that works hand in hand with the sales leadership and then the sales teams on how to bring products to market and you know achieve their quotas, et cetera. And so having that kind of customer point of view, always pushing me to think about it, right? It helped me push the company. And I thought, you know, among other things, helped me earn a lot of respect there. So you literally fell head over heels in ad tech. I did indeed. I fell head over heels. Literally. And I like to say I traded up twice. Right. I got, it up twice. I got the guy and I got the big job at the big company. But after, you know, eight years at Google, I wasn't learning as much as I wanted to. And Snap came calling. They wanted me to build basically the same thing we've done at Google with YouTube, right? Take a nascent brand advertising business and, um, you know, bring it to market, activate across, you know, the biggest brands in the world. And so I got to do that at Snap, and that was a wild ride. And I learned so much in um, two years that I was there. But ultimately, I had my daughter when I was at Snap. She was born a few weeks before the IPO. And I um, just decided that it was a very intense place. And I decided that I wanted something different for my young family. And so I took some time off and consulted. And I think that's really important because it helped me kind of really frame where I wanted to go. And I thought where I wanted to go was outside of ad tech. And so my next job was in real estate technology. And that was very instructive for me because it was a smaller startup. I really got to see how a business is run, how you secure money from investors the decisions you make around that. But also, it is really, really hard to build a business that relies on physical buildings, people, delivering physical goods. And it made me really say like, ah, I really actually appreciate ad tech for a lot of reasons, the talent that is in the industry, but also the ability to scale products really fast and you know, be on the cutting edge of technology. So coming back to Adam, the guy who wouldn't even consider dating me unless I was not working with him. How could you do that, Adam? <laughs> yeah. Well, now he starts to recruit me to be his business partner at Chalice. 
And at this point, we had a three-year-old and a not-yet-one-year-old. The global pandemic was happening. I was actually furloughed and sort of waiting to see what happened at Alfred. We were barely talking about adult things, you know, because we had these two young children and just the world was, you know, collapsing. And so I remember telling people like Adam's, you know, for six months, because Adam was working on the idea a while, like Adam's starting a company and I don't even know what it's about, but I'm really excited for him. It's going to be great. So then while he's really near launching it, he starts to recruit me into working with him on it. And I'm just like, who does that? Who bets all of their family's income and everything into a startup when you have you know two young kids there's a pandemic going on and you're you know living out of an apartment in Brooklyn like trying to survive and so i was like nope i'm going to go get a big big tech job again job security someone's got to have the paycheck and the health insurance but while i was doing that search Adam started to just enlist me in things like making the business plan for the company, writing an investor deck, helping craft the first sales pitch. And I just thought, wow, like this is this is what I want to be doing. And if the person who's the smartest person in the world who I respect the most is asking me to come be his co-founder and and COO, like how could I say no to that? I think that shows a lot. I mean, Look, I mean, let's be totally honest here. This account that I have can get me fired tomorrow. There's no doubt in my mind that this can get me terminated. Wow. That being said, I'm so positive about it and I'm so passionate about it. I'm actually willing to risk it. I'm willing to risk what I have today for this. And as weird as that sounds, I am. And I've realized that this has just become a part of me and I have become a part of this. And so for me to risk it, I understand because the same way as Adam was willing to risk it and put his all in, you know, put all his eggs in one basket to see where it goes. I'm sort of the same. So I I respect people that do that, especially with something that starts at a conceptual phase. Like, hey, I think this is a great idea. Ali, you know, you're really good at this. Can you help me with the sales pitch? Can you help me with the deck? I totally get it because sometimes I feel the same way. I'm like, I'm willing to give it all up. Just so that I can do this and say I did it and it either worked or totally failed. But at least I gave it my all. So I, I respect I respect you guys for doing that personally. Well, thank you. I respect you for doing this um, while you're risking your job. And I think, you know, what I would tell you is like, oh, if you lost your job, there'd be dozens of companies wanting you right away because of what you're doing for the industry. And I think we can get short-sighted, right, about r- risking or losing the thing we're holding in our hand, forgetting that there's like all of these other things in the world that are ready to like, you know, grab our hand back if we reach out. 100%. Yeah. And how do you feel, obviously, you know, getting involved with with Chalice and being more involved from early stage, you know, early stage startup, really? How do you feel that that was different than your involvement with companies like Google and and Snapchat, which are obviously very established, even when you joined, right? Established enough. Yep. Then, you know, saying, hey, here's a piece of paper. Let me kind of scratch this down, see how this works and then build it out. I mean, how was that as an experience for you coming from, you know, the corporate life and then moving into a very agile, nimble startup? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, the first thing I would say is, 
What I always was seeking in my career is like the ability to feel ownership and, you know, make a mark. And the teams that I worked with at Google were some of the leading teams in the company because they were the first to do things like sell YouTube. And that's a totally different sales motion than selling search, right? Like you have to really hustle for those brand dollars, right? Like Google wasn't known as a branding company to its customers. And so anyhow, it was really nice to be part of that go-to-market where we really tip of the spear at the company and you know trailblazing. But I moved to Snap because I wanted even more ownership and more impact on the company, right? Even if on Google, we were, I think, delivering an extra billion dollars of revenue in our organization a year. And that still wasn't that much of an impact on the company. It's crazy. Their <laughs> right? numbers are insane. It's yeah, so their numbers are so crazy. Yeah. So when so when the opportunity to Snap presented itself, it was just like, oh wow, like we can really build something from almost nothing to some something huge. And I'll own the whole organization. So I went over there and I did. I got so much ownership, so much more exposure to all elements of a business. But again, like you end up, especially there, I sort of learned like you can pour all of yourself into a company. It could be, you know, so much of of what you invest in and identify as a person. And if you don't really have ownership of the company, it's not going to give that back to you. You know, so so the big difference with Chalice is like, it's it's ours. I don't see it as mine and Adam's, right? I see it now as as our teams. And the thing that's very similar to Google and Snap is I'm working with a team of people that are just incredible. Again, humbling for me to be part of. So now I'm pouring blood, sweat, and tears into something, and I have you know more control over. I, Sorry, I don't have control over the destiny, <laughs> but I, I have more of a direct impact on the destiny I, of the company. And I, I get it. I think corporate world is so different. You know, they give you quote unquote equity. It's great. It's fine. 99% of the time, it doesn't even pay your cell phone bill for the year after taxes. So when, when you take a look at your RSUs or you look at your, your shares, you cash those out when they vest, you look and, and you're like, okay, this was a nice little cash amount, but this isn't life-changing. Something I spoke to Ari Paparo about the other day, and he's like, you're really going at it with this thing. Like, I go, look, I, I've reached a point in my life where I need to just go all in. Like, I'm either going to provide the best possible life for my kids, or I'm just going to continue paying my minimum payment on my mortgage, have them in a good school, and just live my life forever. And I'm over it. I'm ready for the next phase. And he said his exact words, and I'm looking at the message he wrote to me. He says, got to own the equity. That's it. He's like, got to own the equity. It's the only way you'll ever get ahead. you got to own the equity. I said, okay, at least I own the equity for this. So, you know, just run with it. I think that's, that's a, it's a big part of, you know, just stepping out of your comfort zone and saying, I'm just going to go for it. And that's what I'm doing. And I'm glad that you guys did the same. I'm so happy to hear that for you. It's a big, it's a big step. And it's, it's not like one leap. It's like leaping into a freezing ocean of water and keep swimming for <laughs> while your hands are frozen. Yes. Yes. And, and, and I give a lot of credit to you guys. Um, it's really hard to disconnect 
I'm sure you feel the same way. I'm sure sometimes you feel like, it, you know, chalice is your world. It's really hard to disconnect work from not work when, when you're kind of ramping up and super excited about something. So I give a lot of credit to everybody that has, you know, a startup or, or, or an early stage kind of company. And I've never experienced this. So for me, this is all new, but I'm like, what are they talking about? Just, just turn off your computer on the weekend. So what? And I'm like, oh, well, the paychecks don't come in unless you work hard. And they don't come in unless you you are the one working. So it's very different. Yeah. I mean, the thing that the the big blessing in my life right now is my are my two kids who are who are now um six and four because they just put natural limitations around work, right? Like I can't work between the hours when my nanny leaves at six to when they're asleep around eight or eight thirty. <laughs> like it just can't. And that's like a really nice natural boundary. And by the time 8.30 rolls around, it's like, okay, I either really need to get a little bit more work done or actually, no, that can wait until tomorrow morning. And so that was something, even when I was at SNAP, I thought, you know, perhaps having my daughter was going to limit my productivity as an employee. And it limited more my hours, but my productivity went up, I think, a lot because I was so time-bound in the workday that I just like got shit done. And I also prioritized like a beast, you know, and, and prioritized for my team too. But on the equity front, I wanted to say, you know, so Adam was working at agencies while I was at Google and Snap. And I did get good equity at Google and Snap. And he just saw like our net worth increasing because of my equity in those companies. And he like at Razorfish, he started HX, their trading desk, built it to, you know, over hundred million in revenue and got well compensated for it. But like, there's just no equity in agencies. And he's like, well, I want to, I want to be an owner. <laughs> I want to have ownership in all this amazing um, work I'm building. And so we've really taken the tact of giving real equity to our employees too. So not just kind of like, you know, a little sprinkle to make you kind of feel like an owner. We've really invested in the idea that employees should be owners. We're really lucky because we haven't had to take a lot of outside funding. And that's opened up an employee pool that we can feel like really proud of. We sort of always, when we're giving out equity to, we're like, well, what does this really look like for this person's life? Is Would it impact their person's this person's life? And, you know, we try to always get to a point where it's like, yes, this would you're investing in their future and, and, and they're investing in Chalice's future. And I think that's, yeah, that's great to hear. So we're doing all the things VCs don't and, like. <laughs> right. And, and that's okay. I mean, I think in the end, the, the VCs uh, understand also that if, if you have highly dedicated people and people that are investing their, their time and their love and their passion for your company, chances are you're going to have a higher likelihood of succeeding. So I get that too. I, I get that they don't want you to do that, but I also understand that, that there's a lot of value to doing that for your employees. Moving on to the next topic, like what, is, what are some of the, I guess, major challenges you've had? Obviously, as a startup, you've, you've, you've faced your set of challenges, but what type of challenges have you faced you know, recently or in the past that you feel could help the people listening? I think... Um... Going back to the VC thing, right? Like we, one of the big challenges was raising money for the company. 
it's really sad because the general VC community has has soured on ad tech in a way that I think is unfair to the industry. And so, you know, we successfully raised a small um, seed round. The Trade Desk bought out the round, which was amazing. Um, they created TD7 to fund us. But we were looking last year to do more of a Series A. We had someone lined up to be the lead, but they wanted another kind of major check in the pot. And we we get really close. And then the lead says, you know what, actually, our you know, principals have decided no more ad tech. <laughs> and so we're <laughs> so bummed. And so we had to do some things like, you know, the founders didn't take pay for, for some time. We found some interesting, like kind of financing options, but we were like, you know what? Fundraising takes so much time and effort. Let's just double down on focusing on our customers and making revenue. And by the next quarter, we um, had customers that were so happy that they were very quickly ramping revenue. And we were profitable two quarters later. And we've been profitable since. And we've needed VC money. And so we didn't ever really want to be like a big, big VC-backed company. I mean, we want to be a big company. And if we need VC backing, obviously we'll take that. But I think what I mean is that a lot of, I think, founders, like they set up a company and they're like waiting for that announcement of like their company is valued at $40 million, you know, with a $10 million round before they've even, you know, come up with a product that they're selling. Like we've never been like that. We've always been like, no, like we build a good product, we get revenue. And then those good things like additional funding and, um, you know, those good things come. And so being able to like, get back to focusing on the customer and what's right for the customer and using that as a channel for growth has been important. Yeah. And I think, I think it's the, I mean, personally, I just feel like that's the right way. I feel, you know, prove that revenue can be created or generated, see how you could operate with bare bone expenses, turn a profit, obviously pay yourself out as you can. And then if you need the extra boost, but you're seeing the right trajectory, go get money. I've personally never understood that we lose millions of dollars a year, but we want more money to float because it might make profit five years from now. Like maybe I'm kind of the old school way of, you know, throw some money at it, see if you can get a return and then keep doubling down. But I know that that's just how this world works, where a lot of companies do operate at a loss for quite some time with a long-term vision of turning a profit. But me personally, I look at it as, you know, the less I can put into something, the more I can get out of it, that's fine for me. So, I mean, in the end, that's what we're here for. We're here to turn a profit um, in one way or another. And then, Ali, you're extremely, obviously extremely smart, incredible background. Um, For people that are entering the industry, what do you recommend they do to keep up to date? It's constantly changing across the board, obviously, the way businesses work, the way DSPs work, the way SSPs work, regulation across the map. How do you keep yourself up-to-date on industry changes? Yeah. So, of course, I do, you know, reading of um, industry publications and my LinkedIn feed. But I I like to learn by talking to people. And so what I've tried to do is just, it's hard because we're all so busy to, like, make time to just go have a coffee with someone. But I'm really trying to seek out people who I think are smart and know things I don't 
and get some time with them just to ask questions. Because I came from Google and Snap, I actually didn't know a ton about programmatic. So I had a really steep learning curve the first year at Chalice. And of course, I learned a lot from my co-founder, but being able to just sit down with people and hear, hear their stories and then ask some questions has been tremendous. I have advice though for people who are looking to make moves in their career, which is that I think they should become producers of content. I get so many people reaching out to me saying, you know, I'm I was just laid off and I'm looking for a new role or hey Ali, I'm looking for a big move or keep me in mind when you're hiring XYZ at Chalice. And I really try to, you know, follow that. But what I've noticed is if people are showing up in my LinkedIn feed on a regular basis, just some insight, sharing an article, but especially the ones who kind of share a unique point of view on something. It doesn't have to be revelatory. And to them, it probably seems something kind of like obvious or not that special, but it's the special thing they know. And then I see them, right? Like put that thought leadership out there. And then when I say like, oh, we really have a need for that, or oh, that person I was just having coffee with mentioned they need someone to fill this gap. Like they're there, they're top of mind for me. And so I feel like we can all be content creators. And by doing that, we're really setting ourselves up for, you know, the next big move and being top of mind when people really have a need that they need to fill. Yeah, I mean, I think I think as someone who is as as a little bit more introverted online, is that I know that's weird. That's so weird at this point. But really, someone who was very introverted online, meaning I didn't have an Instagram. I had a Twitter, but never posted anything. I have a LinkedIn, but never post anything. Was very silent in the background to completely flip to the other side, which is like bombardment left and right. Even if I'm wrong, I'm posting it. I'm sharing my opinions. I'm cracking jokes. It is really powerful. And I think networking and creating your brand online is just as important as creating your brand with your coworkers and with your partners in the industry. And so I, I agree with you. I think, you know, come out of your shell, post something. Even if you're wrong, you're going to find people either agreeing or disagreeing with you. But it creates that conversation, which leads into a direct message, which leads into grabbing a coffee and potentially an opportunity. And I think I get it that people are hesitant to do that. At the same time, I, I do agree with you. You have to put yourself out there more than an email saying, hey, if something comes up, let me know, especially in this type of market. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, before Chalice, my LinkedIn page was very sanitized. I don't know. Is you know, I only posted, you know, maybe like reposted an official announcement from my company. When I got to Chalice, right, you go all in and you're like, well, I'm just gonna start posting about, you know, what we do, et cetera. But then someone who is a marketer said to me, like, you know, make your LinkedIn authentic, be more candid, put up candid photos, just be yourself. People love that. And I was like, really? I did it. And I get, I, I just like get people coming up to me at conferences being, I love your LinkedIn. I'm like, really? <laughs> who are you? Thank you. you. Know, I've, I've, I've heard this from a podcast that I, that I did that, that'll be released right before yours from, from Corey Greenberg at Index Exchange. And he said, people buy things from people mm -hmm. that they like. Yeah. 
And so I agree. I think putting yourself out there as just who you are, just being authentic, even in your posts, like even if you're a sarcastic person or, or your sense of humor is a little dry, but you know, people get you or they don't get you, who cares? I think that's the great part is that, you know, your personality is really a part of who you are and how you work and putting it out there is really of no loss. They're going to like you or not. Who cares? In the end, you're posting your opinion. And, and I think it's good for you to, to, to get out there in front of everyone. Yeah. And I think we all have more fans than we realize. And people, you know, I think tend to see the good in other people. And so, yeah, getting over that um, vulnerability hump and getting, putting yourself out there. I think it's, you know, very largely rewarding. Ali, last, last question of the day. We, we've gone through some of your, your, your challenges, obviously your, your awesome background. Um, we have about five minutes to wrap up the podcast. What is Chalice doing? What are their plans? Um, what's the future look like for Chalice? Yeah. yeah, so we just came off an amazing year. We were um, profitable, as I mentioned, which just opens up so many kind of opportunities and, and doors. Um, it also kind of, I think when you are making money, <laughs> you're and not sort of in crisis mode, um, you're just able to think more expansively about the future. And so we're continuing to focus on a product that works. It frankly works every time. We have some really powerful um, products that are out there, products that drive brand lift in real time or deliver incremental reach in CTV. We have one with, that's that two companies are public with us on, um, Hershey's and Hyundai Motor Corporation. They're using the same product for a similar need, which is for Hershey's, They for Halloween, they ship boxes of candy to Targets and Kroger's, and they get back from Target and Kroger how many boxes they've sold each week and how many are still sitting on the shelf. And so we're able to automate how many ads need to go to different geographies based on how much product is moving, right? And so with Hershey's, right, they knew how much product should be moving in the run-up to Halloween. And then if product was falling behind, we put more ad dollars, right, where like product needed to sell. And similarly with Hyundai and Genesis Motors, they know how many cars are sitting on the lot in their 101 DMAs of dealers. It would be kind of insane for an agency to try to set up 101 ad groups times 12 different ad tactics, so 1,200 ad groups, and update those budgets weekly. But it's really powerful if you could do that because you can start putting money where there are cars sitting on the lot. And in their case, they really don't want to put money where there's no cars on the lot because there have been supply chain issues. Like They don't want to advertise to people for cars that aren't available to be bought. So anyhow, we, so we have this product called AI Allocator, and um, that's one that we... Uh, have just launched in Snowflake as an app. We have a lot of kind of, we're building in YouTube and Facebook for that product. We actually, it's built in YouTube. We used it with Hershey's. And so it's just kind of like thinking more expansively. So beyond programmatic, right? We're building them in the social platforms now. Thinking beyond the current capabilities, we're always shopping new partners who can bring us more capability. We're very built to be an open and configurable technology. So any partner who has good data, we'll run it through the system. And if it is more predictive for an advertiser, we use it. Amazing. You know, I wish you guys both the 
successful 2024 and, and beyond. So thank you. Appreciate it. And thank you so much for being here. That's the end of our pod. Thank you, ATG. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the AdTech God Pod, a podcast for the people about the people that make AdTech great. Stay connected with me for more insights, trends, and interviews in the realm of ad tech. Don't miss out on our latest updates. So follow me on X, Instagram, and connect with me on LinkedIn. Don't forget, ATG Slack community has insights, networking opportunities, and jobs. Keep the conversation going and stay at the forefront of ad tech innovation.